I know you're all busy meeting all of your uh, table mates and uh, talking with friends and definitely talking about the uh, Blackhawks game last night, but um, I'd like to welcome you to today's luncheon. Um, on behalf of the uh, program co-chairs, John Bifro, um, Margie Krakowski, both with JLL and myself with the American Red Cross. Um, I do want to remind you that this is uh, the last luncheon series uh, uh, for the summer, so we're going on summer break for the luncheon series, but do keep in mind there are lots of other activities for Cornet going on all summer long, and uh, particularly the appreciation uh, member appreciation events uh, coming up just in a couple weeks. So uh, the next um, luncheon will be on September 10th. So it's the second Thursday. Uh, and uh, one of our very uh, popular programs, Tale for the Trenches. So please mark your calendar for Tales for the Trenches on September 10th. Um, I'd like to uh, and it's, uh, invite everybody to participate in today's uh, program by uh, dialing in to the interactive question and answer application on your phone. I'm slicking for Beth, but go to, if you're not familiar with it, go to the browser, and in the browser, type in cornet.cnf.io, and I'll say that once more, it's cornet.cnf.io. Um, that way you'll be able to ask questions throughout the meeting of our moderator, um, who will um, be uh, viewing those questions and uh, working with the panel. Um, one other quick note is today's presentation will be recorded, so you'll be able to see it on our website um, in a week or so. So if you want to review it, please note that you can go back to the uh, Chicago website to see it. Um, with that, I'd like to uh, recognize uh, Melissa Vedovic, uh, who really orchestrated this program today as part of the program committee. And Melissa is going to come up and introduce our speaker's uh, moderator, uh, Colleen Conklin, and I'll give it away to her. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you. And welcome to everybody. What a great day to have all these wonderful people who are so smart and know so much about well buildings. <laughs> Um, I wanted to thank all of them for coming, and they flew in uh, from different locations, from New York, from Washington, D.C., and Tampa. Um, they have also spoken last year at the Cornet Global Summit, and they just recently spoke in New Jersey at the Cornet uh, luncheon there, and they were very, very well received, so we're very excited to have them. Um, to learn something new and exciting. Uh, the well building standard has been in the research stage for over seven years. Uh, and just recently, it was formally introduced uh, last fall. And this is trending as one of the leading edge and quickly becoming an industry standard. Um, so we're going to be able to have the pleasure of having their intellect and learning much more about this. Um, I'd like to introduce you to our moderator, Colleen Conklin. And uh, she is the Director of Research for Business and Industry at Sodexo. Colleen has a Master's in Bioepidemiology uh, and a very diverse background with a concentration in the environmental science industry. Uh, and in her role at Sodexo, Colleen is responsible for producing the annual Trends Booklet, uh, which she has actually uh, been kind enough to bring copies for everyone today. So a little bit later on after the um, session, I'd like you to pick up your copy. And uh, with that, I'd like to turn it over to Colleen and give everyone a warm welcome today. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you all for coming today. Okay. So in the recent years, health and wellness have become a more fundamental part of the green building design. This presentation will probe how the, how the effects of the environment impact health, wellness, and productivity. Thought leaders from architecture and interior design will weigh in on trends on the cutting edge of research that will influence not only where we work, but the physical 
and psychological impacts our surroundings have on us on a daily basis. According to the CDC, 20% of an individual's health and well-being can be attributed to his or her environment. We know that employees that have access to nutritious foods and opportunities for physical activity are much more likely to make choices to optimize their health and well-being. We also know that healthier employees tend to be more productive and energized in their workday. But employee health and effectiveness can also be affected by indoor air quality, ventilation rates, exposure to certain materials, and other building design factors. So Sodexo and other companies are looking cl more closely at other ways in which buildings can affect human emotional functioning, support, uh, social support, and occupant stress. So this means expanding the focus to include electric light and daylight, noise, views and connection with the environment, spatial factors, and the ways that the other factors that influence the, the way that employees perceive, behave, cope, and cope with environmental stressors. So with this in mind, it's not surprising that the most successful, healthy building designs have typically targeted both individual aspects, aspects and the surrounding environment. So having said this, let me introduce our first speaker. Randy Pfizer leads the American Society of Interior Designers as CEO, overseeing the society's strategic planning, financial management, and national operations. He has dedicated his career to advancing the community and economic development and brings to his role a unique point of view about the capacity of design to make a positive impact on human health, well-being, and productivity. Randy? Thank you. Let's bring Jessica up as well. Okay. Our second speaker will be Jessica Cooper. She is Executive Director of Project Management and Sustainability at Delos Living. Her roles as a member of the architectural and design industry include project management, design and construction, as well as developing and executing educational programs for the green building community. Jessica graduated from Cornell University with a Bachelor of Science in Design and Environmental Analysis. She serves an active, as an active committee member of the Living Building Challenge New York City and New Jersey Collaborative, the International Interior Design Association, New York Chapter Sustainability Forum, and Urban Green Council's Membership Committee. Currently at Delos, her work seeks to improve health and wellness through the spaces in which we live and work while minimizing the impact on our, national on our natural environment. Jessica? Go ahead. So good afternoon, everyone. I'm going to go ahead and get up. and I can't speak unless I walk. So I'm going to be walking around as I, I'll be presenting. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. This is a great honor to be with you. Um, I actually yesterday was with another set of folks in San Antonio where the conversation was about technology and the built environment. Um, I don't know how many of you are cross paths with Realcom or IBCOM, um, but that was, uh, they were having their conference down in uh, San Antonio. Um, and it was really interesting as we were having our conversations down there um, where this conversation about health and wellness and well-being was beginning to intersect also with technology because you have the, the components of wearables and you also have the dimensions that we'll be going into and talking about here, which is how does the systems within the building actually help to create the environments for health and wellness as well as the atmospheres and the spaces and the design. Uh, so I represent an organization, the American Society of Interior Designers, we have 26,000 interior designers around the, the country. Uh, we have 48 chapters uh, in, um, there's one here in Chicago as well. Uh, and we 
are really focused in on a conversation about the impact of design on the human experience and how does design actually change our lives and enhance our lives in a very real way. Um, we know and recognize that 90%, if not more, actually I think the latest statistic is 93% of our time, and it's a very sad statistic, is spent indoors. Um, not interacting with nature, but actually spent in a building like this um, and in a space like this. And that really does, and we believe, and we have evidence to back it up, have an impact on us as human beings. You heard Colleen say that 20% of our health and wellness is tied up in the interaction with the spaces that we occupy. So where we come to at the end of this is that we believe that design can transform people's lives. You can actually improve a person's life, enhance a person's life through the aspect of designing a space in the appropriate way. And what we're talking about with this is not a person who's picking out fabrics and a person who's picking out pillows. We're talking about somebody who literally is dealing with the structural element, the non-seismic and non-load-bearing structures within a space. So that can be HVAC systems, it can be the systems furniture, it can be the materials, it can be the flooring, it can be the lighting. All of those dimensions are what make up interior design. And we've been connecting that conversation in a very real way on a three different dimensions. One of them is around sustainability, which is how does the building perform with the environment that we're, we're dealing with? Um, and we know that we're a little bit behind the curve now in that sustainability conversation because we actually are dealing with climate change events in a very real way as a, as a, as a nation and as a globe. Um, and we also know that 70% of our carbon emissions are coming from the buildings that we occupy. Um, we also are seeing the interaction and a, a strong curve moving up in adoption of the understanding that health, wellness, and well-being are impacted um, by the spaces that we occupy. And I've been talking about that a little bit already, and we'll be spending the whole time really focusing on that dimension. Um, we have seen a generation that is now um, talking about, and, and we had one survey that we did, where homeowners, young homeowners, millennials, um, or uh, renters, um, because many of them are renting, not owning, um, believe that 91% of them actually believe that the building that they're, or the spaces that they're living in actually impact their health and wellness. Um, so there's actually becoming a strong consensus among populations that this space that we're in, and, and what we believe is the conversation needs to shift to that and understanding about that. We also see resiliency being a big issue out there. Um, resiliency is protecting people from the climate change events that we're talking about, whether they're natural disasters or they're related to the global changes that we're seeing. But we need to uh, create spaces that protect and also bring people back when those types of events happen. So that's the focus of ASID's conversation. That's really where we're focusing all of our attention, our education, and our advocacy work. Um, so let's take a moment and step back. And how this presentation works is actually what I'm going to be doing um, is really talking about health and wellness and well-being and sort of the, the why, we, why this is an issue. Um, and then uh, Jessica is really going to be focusing on what are we doing now to address these issues in real detail and how does the standard of the well-building standard play into this um, and how we can actually certify buildings um, as well. Uh, so the, the first thing is, um, let's just talk about the business case of this. Uh, you all could probably roll off the number of the amount of real estate assets that the U.S. has just within the United States. Um, and then if we take it to a global level, the amount of real estate asset, it is the largest asset class out there. It's $300 trillion. Um, we're also seeing a spend that is dramatically increasing, which is on health and wellness, which is about $2.7 trillion spend in the United States. So if you map those two asset classes together, that's a good opportunity right now that we're talking about. So we're not just talking about this from a, a very esoteric, let's do the, the right thing here. We're talking about this from a very much a business standpoint. The other thing that we know is that companies' largest expenditure is on their human capital. So we can say it is human capital, we can say it is personnel, we can say it basically it's the people that work in the organization. That's the largest expenditure that, a, that a, um, a company spends their money on. It's not real estate, it's actually not the energy cost, it's not um, the other dimensions of it. It actually is the humans that occupy the space. So if they're not productive, you actually are spending money on something that is losing you money as an organization. So. When we think about this, we also start tying in other dimensions into this conversation. So this slide is the Congressional Budget Office's expectation of what we're going to be spending on health care. That's the line right here. 
So everything else, mandatory programs, Social Security, and discretionary spending are all flattening out. The one thing that's going up is our healthcare spending. It's the aging of our population, and it's the changing of our population around obesity and non-communicable diseases that are increasing, and that's what we're going to flip to next. This is what happens to us when we're at work right now. Um, this is a dramatic movement up in non-communicable disease that happens during the period of our life when we're at work because we suddenly go from a very active life to a very sedentary life. So you can see cardiovascular disease increases, diabetes begins to increase, and obviously those two are correlated. We actually see an increase in hypertension. Anybody who gets stressed at work? Yes? yes? <laughs> Do you know that your work environment can decrease your stress? <laughs> um, total cholesterol increases, obesity increases. So we'll run a full statistics. I go to work and I get fat. Um, so the other thing is we decrease our, our physical activity. Um, we wind up increasing it somewhat, but during those early phases of work, we decrease it because we go from this really active lifestyle that we have where we're going to school and we're able to use our leisure time a little bit more effectively, and then we wind up in a situation where it drops. Um, smoking increases while we're at work, um, and we know that uh, those are things that we're trying to deal with. This has become such an issue that the World Health Organization has actually put workplace as two dimensions on their four-dimension system of, the, of a need to solve these issues. So we're talking about the psychosocial work environment and we're talking about the physical work environment as being up to the level that the World Health Organization has now said, we need to do something about this because this is really causing us as a globe huge problems. So, Along with that, ASID, um, in working with other organizations, uh, and some of uh, you maybe represented in this room of, of the organizations we worked with, um, did a study and we were asking people their perceptions about, you know, do you see the, 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 um, the health and wellness of, of your workplace or your spaces really impacting your lives? And if you actually have done something about it, do you see that there's some positive influences that take place from that? So one of the things that we did in the executive part of this search is we found that executives were saying they're, they're seeing an increase in the number of sick days that people are taking, and they're seeing an increase in the amount of disability leave that people are beginning to take. So now what causes people to be out of work for sickness and what also causes them to become disabled? Well, short-term physical illnesses and long-term physical illnesses are really caused through there are some things that we can do about those things that, that uh, will cause people to, um, or let's see, let me reframe this. There are some things that we can do with space that can decrease the severity and or the occurrences of these types of issues as we're working. Um, the things that we can't deal with, we haven't yet learned a way to design spaces so that maternity leaves don't take place. So. <laughs> We don't want to get to a point where we can say that, you know, design, well, yeah, I guess you can. You can design a really bad bedroom and somebody, you know, anyway. <laughs> um, then you also have the, the, the family leave. You need to take care of family members and people need to be away from work to do that. You can create work protocols and other things in environments, but you're really still going to have those types of issues. So the top two are things that design can deal with. The bottom two, we're saying not so much. Um, so what are those things and how does that work? Well. When it comes to short-term illnesses like colds and flus, headaches, um, respiratory ailments, natural ventilation systems actually can help reduce those things. One of the things that happened when we began to move into the architectural world of um, these great big skyscrapers with glass walls and all these kinds of things, a lot of you in Chicago you have a lot of these, we also locked in every bit of air that is in that space and kept it contained within that space and don't circulate natural air into those spaces anymore. We're beginning to design buildings where you actually can be in a hundred stories and you can still open your window. Um, but what we did is created a incubator for disease and pestilence to be spread. Um, <laughs> access to daylighting is another way of, <laughs> of, of dealing with this and proper lighting. We are also looking at low VOCs, products that don't off-gas and create respiratory illnesses um, or headaches and migraines, um, better HVAC systems with filters and other types of things. These are all things that we can do with space and design that can actually decrease the, or the, the um, amount of uh, people being out for sickness um, and headaches and other types of ailments. Um, when we get to things like psychosocial issues, depression and stress, um, I was just talking about that. How many are uh, depressed in here? No. Um, <laughs> I am. Um, anyway, <laughs> um, 
the, um, those issues, actually daylighting can help with that. Access to nature, having plants in a spaces or having the views of plants in spaces or actually having images of plants in spaces can actually reduce hypertension and stress. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, acoustical comfort. Everybody has gone to these open offices and we talk about that all the time and the fact that the noise and the, the, the levels of, of, of acoustical comfort have changed dramatically, there are ways that design can actually influence that in a very positive way and give people the spaces and the level of, of noise that they really doesn't impact them in a negative way. Um, there are also access to outside views, things like that can deal with this. Um, then we deal with long-term physical illnesses where somebody has to be out, out because they've hurt themselves or something else has gone from a, a minor issue to a major issue. Well, some of those things are um, ergonomic design. Um, I always ask this, um, how much longer do you guys want to be sitting in these chairs um, today? Um, you know, a few more hours, would that be comfortable? Uh, so the, the design of chairs, the design of our workstations, all of those things play out in, in how much, uh, how that works with our bodies. Um, we also see access to proper daylighting helping this um, and just access to lighting. So if you have stairwells, if you have hallways, if you have other types of selections of products that go into spaces that cause people to trip or fall or, or other things that happen, these are things that design can deal with. And, and, um, and that's really deals with these muscular-related problems and the falls that take place at work, which are major causes of long-term out, being out of the office. So when these things are put into place, um, the executives that we talked to that have made decisions to design their spaces using these uh, criteria um, have found that they've had um, reductions in their healthcare costs. We found that they've had productivity increases. We found that their employee satisfaction levels have gone up. And we found that absenteeism has decreased. Um, you, there is a, a current uh, study that I was just uh, working with C.B. Richard Ellis uh, and there was a panelist from C.B. Richard Ellis that was there, not to call out any one of the real estate companies here, um, but the, they have designed their headquarters using the well standard um, in L.A. Um, and 93% of their employees said they would never work in another space that didn't have the well component um, in it. That's a huge retention number if you, if you translate that into I won't choose to work anyplace else unless they have this kind of criteria and the availability of those spaces. Um, so that's the correlation that we're making is retention, productivity, and other things. And so here's the numbers that we like to throw out. If you were just to pay $33.24 an hour to 1,000 employees and you were to increase their productivity by 6%, that's $3.9 million that goes to the bottom line of that company. That's a real change in the bottom line, and we're not talking about a huge investment that gets you to that change. Um, so a small percentage of those dollars going into the design of that space can actually get a huge return on investment. Um, I know when I talk to a lot of folks, they talk about the energy and the cost savings related to energy and other types of things. What we don't tend to do is correlate the human component of this into those conversations as well. Um, we know that biophilic design um, can reduce hypertension. Biophilic design is actually that access to nature, access to light, all those kinds of things. Um, there is evidence that supports all of these things that are up here, that it actually reduces violent crime, it can reduce hypertension, cognitive, it can improve cognitive functions, all of these types of things relate to the design of spaces. And we've watched as companies have begun to incorporate these into their designs and actually into their brand as a company. Google wants to be known as the happiest place to work. Um, and they have designed their offices and their campuses around that concept. And if you've ever worked at Google or talked to somebody who works at Google and you ask them, what, how many applications do you get for every single job opening that you have? It is seismic. Um, they are able to attract the best talent in the world um, because it's not only what they're doing, but it's also about the place that they work. Um, we also find organizations like LivePerson who are really creating this sort of dynamic of here's our place to work, and here's who we are as a company, and talking about it together. The conversations have gotten to a point in, um, that we're having that there are actually young employees, particularly, who will choose a lower salary because the place that they work is better designed. So design is really becoming correlated to where people work. Um, this became so important for ASID that we made a commitment to the Clinton Global Initiative to develop a set of health and wellness protocols, um, and we're actually in the process of doing that. We have a set of uh, now 19 partners that are working with us. Steelcase is actually one of our partners, so thank you very much on that. Um, and we have demonstration sites like Lake Nona, which is 7,000 acres in Orlando um, that is designed around a health and wellness component. So the 85,000 residents 
residential spaces have health and wellness dimensions involved in it. Um, the corporate uh, campuses are going to have this. The hospitals all have health and wellness built into it. And they're actually going to the point where they're going to be testing um, on a voluntary basis the blood of the people who live in that community um, and seeing if there's improvements in their health based upon the 7,000-acre design. They've already got it to the point where people are willing to pay a premium for the spaces and the homes and the community there. Um, in fact, if you go to a house on this side of the street, which is part of the Lake Nona community, versus the other side of the street, you're going to pay 25% more for that house. Um, we're do, do, we do research to back all this up. So we're, we're saying this, all of this conversation, but we're backing it with research. So from an ROI standpoint, we have um, uh, about... Our, through the ASID Foundation, we give about $100,000 a year to grants um, on behalf of the interior design community to, to prove dimensions of design. So we have a grant to Michigan State University and Cornell University that are looking at productivity, engagement, and retention. Um, and those findings are actually coming out next week at NEACON. Um, we have two sessions at NEACON here in Chicago um, that, that look at uh, the results of these studies. Um, we also look at it from a health and patient outcome perspective from a healthcare setting. So Drexel University is looking at uh, does natural light or light that um, mimics natural light. So I don't know if you know this, but this light here um, doesn't necessarily reflect natural light that's outside. But you can get light bulbs that move from the color spectrum of what a natural day would occur like. So our circadian rhythms stay in alignment. Um, and we're doing a study with Drexel to see if a homeless population that goes to a, um, a, a home every single day um, and are exposed to this natural light uh, or the artificial light that mimics natural light can actually decrease their substance abuse and increase their, um, their, their levels of uh, positiveness um, and de thus decreasing depression. Um, we've worked with Texas Tech looking at designing for autism and communities around autism. Um, and Center for Healthcare Design is looking at maternity awards and other types of things. Um, we actually have a, another grant that we did, um, $100,000 to the Center for Active Design, looking at standing at work. Um, everybody's talked about the new sitting is the new smoking. That's kind of the buzzword now. Um, but we're looking behind that and actually deciding, you know, does this, um, you know, how much standing do you need? How much sitting do you need? You know, what's the, the balance between the two? Going beyond just saying stand up at work, we're, we're looking at the full dimension of this. Because we know people with back issues and other things, sometimes that's not a good thing to stand all day. Um, and we also want to know if standing in heels are a good thing or a bad thing, um, stuff like that. So um, that's with uh, Mount Sinai, Perkins and Will, and Steelcase um, as the component of that. You know, the, one of the things that I hypothesize, and the reason I'm showing this is we're at the 25th anniversary of the Affordable, or the um, American with Disabilities Act, and ASD was proud to be the first to put out guidelines um, related to that. Um, I'm seeing a future where things related to, um, as ADA is built into almost every single building that we have now, I'm seeing a future where well um, and wellness is built into every single space that we actually occupy. I think it's intrinsic for people where lead is more extrinsic. Um, lead is are we changing the planet, which is a lot longer to kind of feel about. Whereas if I say, you know, the house, that, the home that you're creating um, and your baby being in a room that's filled with VOCs uh, is going to, you know, positively or negatively impact their life, that's a real kind of touches immediately into us as people. Um, and we know that designing for special needs is an area that we're focused in on. Um, you can design for autism. Actually, the, uh, last month was Autism Awareness Month, which is why this is in here as well. Um, but autism has dimensions as it's related to it that talk about touch and sight and, um, and what they hear. Um, and they can have positive or negative experiences based upon the design of a space. And designers can actually learn how to design spaces that create a more positive experience for children um, with autism and actually through their entire life. Because, by the way, when you turn 18, you don't suddenly get rid of your autism. Um, you need spaces throughout your entire life that support this. And so we have actually created a set of e-readers around this as an organization. Um, I have a video that I'd like to show, which is our latest. Uh, this actually came out two days ago, so you're seeing it for the first time. It's a 90-second clip, but this is part of our Clinton Global Initiative, and it talks about the built environment's um, relationship to health and wellness, um, and that's from an interior, a building, and an exterior component. Um, so I'm going to play this really quick. We all want to thrive, to live the best, healthiest life that we can. We try to be active and exercise. We pay attention to the foods we eat. We relax and play to relieve stress. 
We seek quality medical care when we're sick or injured. But what about the places where we and our loved ones live, work, and play? It's been said often, but it's still true. Most of us spend over 90% of our time indoors. Do we actually know what's inside the homes and buildings we occupy each day? And how the stuff they're made of might influence our health? Though we may not pay much attention to them, the spaces around us, both inside and outside, can affect our health quite a lot. For example, carpeting and furniture can emit gases that aggravate respiratory problems and trigger allergies. Inadequate lighting or ventilation systems can contribute to stress and fatigue. Uninviting spaces around buildings can collect pollen and other allergens and also expose people to extreme weather. We can do something about each of these issues. At the interior scale, we can purchase products and materials that don't use harmful chemicals. At the building scale, we can install better window and ventilation systems that maximize daylighting features and fresh air to improve productivity and comfort. At the exterior scale, we can shape public areas with shading devices to protect pedestrians from the elements and design plantings to minimize allergens. The three scales are connected. For example, pollen from the outside can affect indoor air quality and highly reflective glass can contribute to the urban heat island effect. Integrated solutions that work across these three scales can have the greatest positive impacts on health and wellness. Oh, wow. <laughs> nice to see. <laughs> I'm gun <-toting> now. <laughs> All right, my next slide. My next slide is just a, uh, there's closer. Um, so the, the element of this is uh, we have three of these just two-minute kind of clips that are out there that then expand into a 20-minute that then expand into an hour. And there's going to be a set of curriculums that are going to be offered to the design community that will build from the interior scale to the building scale to the um, interaction with the exterior uh, environment. Um, and that's part of our commitment to the health and wellness um, protocols that we designed for the Clinton Global Initiative. So um, thank you very much. And I know that you're going to get a ton more information now from Jessica as it relates to the well standard and the impact of design. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, hi everyone. So we are in poorly designed chairs and sitting is the new smoking. So if anyone wants to stand up, please feel free at any point during my presentation. Um, I won't be offended at all. I think part of um, this shift in designing for healthier buildings, healthier spaces is also about a culture shift as well and being accepting of some of the different behaviors that might enable us to live and work in healthier environments. Um, so I am from Delos and um, I'm the director, executive director of project management there, but I'm gonna focus today on the International Well Building Institute and the Well Building Standard. And the Well Building Institute is uh, the organization who has been tasked with the, um, the responsibility of managing and maintaining and being the administrator of the Well Building Standard. And their mission is to improve human health and well-being through the built environment. And this is probably the 12th time we've seen this statistic today. Um, but I think the important, I always love presenting with Randy actually because he does such a great job of setting up the stage for why the well building standard, why is this important. Um, but we do, we spend 90% of our time indoors unless we're really lucky and we work outside or spend a lot of time outside. Um, and I think this all started with this notion of why if we spend 90% of our time indoors, why aren't we regulating the health and wellness aspects of our built environment? And why isn't all this research that's been going on for many decades now around how a space can improve your health, why isn't it all conglomerated in one easy to digest, easy to implement place? 
So the well-building standard and these concepts really sit at this human architecture interface. And when we set out doing this research, we really wanted to understand how can we consider our buildings and our interior spaces as more than just four walls and a roof? How can we use our buildings and our design to help educate us, help change our behaviors, and potentially even help impact our habits inside that, that healthy space and outside of that healthy space? Couple of statistics here. In the US, air pollution is the number one cause of premature death, attributing to 50,000 deaths annually. And one in 12 adults have asthma. Um, we've for a very long time regulated or at least measured and monitored outdoor air quality, but we've never really stopped to think about once we enclose materials and other um, ingredients, contaminants within a space, how does that impact air quality? And then if we're spending 90% of our time inside the interior air quality, how does that impact our health? We also know that many adults spend about 70% of their time sitting um, throughout the day. And about 51% of the US population is projected to be obese by 2030. And that is a result both of physical activity and the food that we eat and other elements like stress. Um, obesity, of course, is linked with chronic diseases like heart disease. Um, and we think through design, we can have a positive impact on the statistic. And finally, just one more statistic or one more frame of reference for you all. Um, obviously, we affect physical comfort when we design our spaces and when we operate our spaces. Things like very you know, common metrics like air temperature and humidity, of course, affect how comfortable we feel. But even things like olfactory comfort and acoustical comfort. Um, and then even the type of work culture that we're um, embodying when we, when we have an organization. What are people allowed to wear to work? And are they allowed to move around the space to feel more comfortable depending on the task that they're doing? And comfort does affect both our physical health and our mental health. And we think we can address that through some pretty straightforward design principles. So the well-building standard is about creating healthier, more productive places for people. And it provides a performance-based framework um, to really measure the impact that our buildings are having on the occupants. I'll get more into that a little bit later. Um, but I think the most important thing to note is that the well-building standard uses quantitative metrics and measures performance like air quality, water quality, acoustics, light levels, post-construction and post-occupancy to really validate that you've been successful in your, your journey to create a more healthier space. Um, the other exciting part to this story, I think, is that it starts to position the real, real estate industry, designers, engineers, operators, owners, as agents of public health. We've really tried to create a new vocabulary in the well-building standard that links those scientific and medical facts to the design and construction operations industry. So when we talk to our clients about what is a healthier space and how can it impact you, we're giving them a new way of speaking and advocating for their intuitively good ideas by providing a medical reference. So ultimately, the well-building standard is for the people. Um, and I think Colleen mentioned in the introduction, or, or maybe it was Melissa mentioned in the introduction, it's really founded on about seven years of research. And one of the best things that happened over the last couple of years is a true partnership with the environmental sustainability industry here in the US um, and abroad as well. We're working internationally. But the International Well Building Institute is partnered with the Green Building Certification Institute to offer this third party certification. And over time, the process of achieving LEED and WELL will become even more seamless and easy for projects who really want to have a holistic approach to sustainability, environmental and human-based approach to sustainability in their projects. A couple of facts here also, six years of research, three years of pilots to lead us to version 1.0, which was launched in October of last year. There are seven concepts and 100 different features in the commercial office sector. And finally, this is a conglomeration of best-in-class research. We do cite 97 different organizations, 328 different sites, and we engage 37 peer review groups within the medical industry, scientific industry, and A&D industry over the development of this first pilot. And we're continually seeking additional collaboration and partnerships to expand this knowledge even further. The WELL version 1.0 that was launched in October is optimized for commercial and institutional office spaces. And we can now certify core and shell buildings, owner-occupied new construction, or uh, full renovated buildings, and tenant improvement projects. Since October, we've launched a couple of new pilots as well. So we can also offer pilot certification for multifamily residential, 
retail, education, and uh, restaurants. And in the future, we're starting to look at how does this affect athletic facilities, how does this affect healthcare facilities, um, and how does this potentially even affect the way we design our urban environments. From the very onset, our founder and CEO, Paul Shala, has been committed to understanding how these concepts interplay with people in different parts of the world who have different lives and potentially different assets. So it's really this confluence of data. Never before have these three very different industries spoken to each other before. And the well-building standard does present a framework finally to have this conversation between the scientific and medical community. What conditions are healthier for people to live and work in? The built environment, so the people who are designing and operating our buildings. And then the business case as well, as Randy so eloquently pointed out. Um, we're also working uh, on an ongoing basis on quote-unquote hardening the data. So we're looking at sensor technology, both for air, you know, environmental sensors that can monitor performance over time, wearable sensors so we can really non-obtrusively measure how people are feeling or performing in their physical environments. Um, we're actively gathering pre- and post-occupancy feedback to start to connect these dots between healthier design solutions, healthier spaces from a performance perspective, and then actually healthier, happier, more productive people. Um, and we're collecting business metrics along the way, of course, helping to expand the story on, on ROI. Um, and at Delos, we're engaging with the Mayo Clinic to actually build a clinical lab setting where we can combine controlled experiments implementing specific strategies in a controlled environment, understanding how they impact the environment and the people within it, combining that with our field research from certified projects to really advance the research in this field. So before I go quickly through the standard, and I definitely want to leave time for questions, um, I just want to point out this quote. This is from the 1940s, I think. Um, the World Health Organization calls health a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, and not merely the absence of disease or infirmary. And I think this is a huge shift we're starting to see in the healthcare industry in general. How can we really address preventative medical intentions and not really, and not only be looking at sick care? We don't need to just be healing, we need to be fostering a healthier population. And that's exactly what the well building standard aims to do, is taking real estate, the places where we spend 90% of our time indoors, and infusing that environment with preventative medical intentions. So we look at seven different concepts here. We think this is a pretty holistic perspective. Um, air, water, nourishment, light, fitness, comfort, and mind. And then there are sort of three main ways that we address health and wellness through, through the well-building standard. The first is through design and construction recommendations. So how can we select materials better, design our mechanical systems better, um, and then ultimately um, implement healthier construction processes to not have a negative effect at the time of move-in. Then we recognize the importance of how people operate and maintain their buildings. So there are a lot of strategies around protocols and policies on an operational perspective, facilities perspective, that is rolled in with the holistic well-building standard. It's not separate like some of the other environmental sustainability programs. And then finally, we really try to understand how we can impact human behavior. So there's a lot of elements of the well-building standard that look at education, um, and impacting habits and culture change to help make these transitions more seamless. Getting back to that medical and science research, this is sort of also helping you understand how we're introducing a new vocabulary within the real estate industry. But we look at how every single strategy in the well-building standard impacts 11 different physical body systems. So when you read the requirements or the recommendations, you can actually see how a specific water quality strategy impacts, say, the cardiovascular system and the respiratory system. And as you advocate, if you are in the A&D community, as you advocate for these strategies within your buildings, you can actually have new ways of presenting why these incentives are important to implement. There are three levels of certification. We know that the industry likes competition and hopefully will push um, to further bounds if we do encourage people to get to a higher level of certification. So there is a sort of gold, uh, silver, gold, and platinum track depending on um, the ambition of the project team. And one thing I should mention that sets the well-building standard apart from some of the other rating systems is that we've set a pretty high bar for that silver certification. Uh, silver certification is dependent on project teams meeting 30% of the entire strategies in the well-building standard. We call them preconditions. So it's the same 
sort of, I guess it's around 40 strategies depending on the program you're pursuing. The same 40 strategies across all buildings calling themselves silver certified. And those, those strategies include the performance-based metrics. So even the basic level of certification ensures that on the quantitative side, air quality, water quality, light levels, and acoustics, we are meeting um, some scientifically vetted strategies for improving health and wellness through the built environment. So very, very quickly, going to go through the seven concepts to leave time for questions. Um, the air category, um, pretty intuitive, is founded on providing optimal air quality within the built environment. Um, and then also making sure people have access to fresh outdoor air. So I think the most important strategy in this category is actually setting physical thresholds or quantitative thresholds for project teams to achieve post-construction and post-occupancy. During a well-commissioning process, a third party actually comes to the space, measures and validates that you're meeting those performance thresholds. Um, we also introduce preventative uh, filtration strategies to help project teams achieve those thresholds. Um, we look at things like material selection and designing healthier entrances to stop harmful contaminants from coming inside in the first place. Um, and we also look at different operational policies as well and how that can sort of support ongoing good air quality. The water category, again, pretty intuitive. We're looking at providing optimal water quality for any water that comes in contact with humans in the building. So we set different standards for water that is used for bathing or hand washing, and then even higher standards for drinking water. We also look at uh, strategies around providing access to fresh drinking water, hydration, keeping people um, hydrated throughout the day. And then only if necessary, based on performance, do we require project teams to install water filtration. The nourishment category is all about providing people with healthier choices and minimizing portion sizes on the unhealthy choices. We actually had a really healthy lunch here today, which is awesome, because sometimes I get to this category and everyone sort of turns their head and gets really embarrassed. But um, hopefully everyone's feeling energized and good. It was a very healthy, um, healthy lunch and um, also healthy portions as well. So we look at plate sizes, cup sizes, to prevent people from overeating unconsciously. And even from a design perspective, we look at how can you design for mindful eating spaces um, so that people aren't unconsciously while they're working just stuffing food in their face and not realizing how that can ultimately make them feel. Um, we're, we're relocating our offices in New York City right now, and I just did a workplace strategy survey where we integrated the health and wellness concepts, the seven concepts, into the workplace strategy survey. And I had to, I talk about how these strategies impact productivity all the time, but I had to rate sort of how these seven strategies from most impactful to least impactful on a scale of productivity in my workday. Um, and I think it's interesting because then you start to really think about, well, what, how does what I eat actually impact my productivity? Is my lunch making me feel more productive or potentially lethargic? And there is, you know, there's a huge impact. If we can make these uh, healthier choices more accessible in our work environment, we can have a huge impact on that afternoon portion of our day. Light category, really, really fascinating. Won't get into too many details, but this is where some of the newest science lives. Um, so we've been studying a lot. Well, we've set standards uh, pretty frequently in the US around activity-based lighting, how much lux level is on our work service so we can get our job done. Um, but the more interesting component is in circadian design and understanding the spectral distribution of our light source and how that emulates the sun and making sure that when we want to feel most productive, we're emulating that noontime sun. And when we're needing to prepare for sleep and the Evening, that we're emulating more of a sunset evening light and not um, harmfully actually producing cortisol when we're trying to prepare for sleep. So methods of both artificial lighting but also recognizing the importance of daylighting, um, glare control, other strategies like that. Fitness category is really focused on how do we get rid of that excuse of I don't have the time and can we integrate physical activity with our day-to-day -day lives. So we look at strategies of interior and exterior active design, getting people to just want to move around because it's fun. Um, and then also when we can activity-based working, anything from a sit-stand desk and sort of engaging your core at different times throughout the day to actually having an activity-based working style. So maybe you're pedaling while you're on a conference call or you're having a walking meeting on a treadmill desk, sort of from the gamut of really acceptable in current workplace to stretching our cultural boundaries a little bit. Um, and then when possible, when space allows, really designing physical activity spaces within our buildings to make it more convenient for people to use them. 
Um, getting back to that sort of scale of productivity, I think comfort is probably one of the most impactful. If you think about how a, an environment that's too hot or too cold impacts your ability to concentrate, or an environment that is too loud or even too quiet impacts your ability to get your work done, this is hugely important in the conversation. And we're starting to be able to assign actual physical performance metrics around this concept. So we do look at thermal comfort, we look at acoustical comfort, and then even go over and beyond to olfactory comfort and ergonomic comfort. And then finally, the mind category. Last but very much not least, um, there's a lot of data about how stress impacts uh, our sort of affinity to potentially get a chronic disease later in life. Um, and there's a huge, huge connection between stress, cognitive health, and physical health. Um, so a number of different strategies in this category. Um, this is one area where we're really just starting to get people to have a conversation about these ideas. So things like connection to nature, biophilia, um, designing for spirit and culture and place and getting people to feel connected with their community through their interior design, providing education around wellness amenities and really allowing people to understand what, what amenities have been put in their space, how can they make best use of those amenities and how can they take that knowledge and apply it to their lives outside of work. Some of the most exciting stories when I work with clients are those that we implement these strategies and then they overhear conversations about how they're changing the way they're feeding their kids at home or their workout routine in the morning or even how they commute to work based on the strategies that the owner of their company put in place when they moved offices. Um, so I'm gonna end there and open it up for questions and thank you for your time. So as we mentioned earlier, there is the application where you can put your questions in online. You can tap on them, which is kind of a like function, which sort of moves it up. We have a few that we will start with, but please feel free to add as we go from there. So the first question we have is, does the well building standard apply to residential properties? Yes. 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 So uh, the well, version, well building standard version 1.0 is optimized for office spaces. Like I said, corn shell, new construction, and tenant improvement. But we have recently released the multifamily pilot, which should be available at wellcertified.com in the next few days, um, where people can enroll their project in a more of a interactive or collaborative phase in the development of the standards for a residential setting. Randy, do you want to talk a little more about Lake Nona and how that's gone with a residential? Sure. Um, the the 7,000 acres of this, this community that's been created um, they're not necessarily mapping to the standard because they do have single family homes there, um, but they, they are designing with these principles in mind as they're designing the houses and the communities and other things that are going there. So um, Robin Wilson, who actually has a book um, called Clean Home, uh, has been down there working with the design team on the residential components. Um, and again, 85,000 people are going to be living in this community. They have, I think they have 25,000 right now that live in that community, um, ultimately, to get to that point. And, and then the commercial real estate um, is going to have retail. Um, all of the restaurants in the area are going to be like farm to table. Um, they're not going to be chain related. Um, and they actually are going to have some local farming on the actual development of the 7,000 acres. Um, so that really is looking at how both um, the community comes together um, how the individual home comes together, and then the spaces within those uh, come around. So I will ask, how do you envision this growing? So the success of Lake Nona, how, how can developers in other communities tap in and, and decide for themselves if something that they're planning for the future is what sure. is the way they want to program this? So part of what we're doing with the, the Clinton Global Initiative and our health and wellness protocols is really increasing the level and understanding of interior, the interior design community as a whole. Doesn't matter what vertical you're practicing in, whether it's workplace, healthcare, hospitality, or all the way to residential but that the designers have more information to share with their clients. The other thing is the information that we're moving to the homeowner is to help them understand how these spaces actually impact their lives. Um, and what we're seeing is the millennial generation in particular already is coming around to that conversation. So the study that I, I referred to is 91% of the millennials actually believe that the spaces that they live in uh, do impact their lives um, and their health and wellness in, in a very real way. So. Um, we think, again, that this is the future and, and why we're positioning the design community um, and working with these partners to, to really be out in front of it. So our next question, I know both of you talked 
uh, some about measuring, measuring the outcomes of this. And evidence-based solutions are what we want to tout for the future so that someone new can come along. Um, how do you measure increase in occupant productivity after changing the design of the space? Yeah. It's a great question. Um, maybe taking one step back and just sort of explaining where we're at, I think, in the industry with measuring and monitoring. Um, for so long, we've tried to set good intentions around healthy design strategies and then link that to healthier, more productive people. Um, and what we're trying to take a break and sort of measure that first step. Do these healthy design strategies actually lead to healthier places? And through measuring, testing, on-site, post-construction, post-occupancy, we can actually validate that we're meeting those stringent performance thresholds in air quality, water quality, acoustics, um, lighting that scientists and medical doctors have said are better for us to be living and working in. Um, from there, uh, I mean, I think it's also important to note uh, this is less about testing and monitoring, but more about inspecting and checking up. Um, we think it's very important to do a visual inspection, a third-party visual inspection as part of your certification to check on some of the more, um, well, less measurable, but um, visual components that make up a healthier space. Have you actually designed and installed the filters that you said you're going to design and install? Are you actually providing the food that you said you're going to provide? And really holding people accountable to what they've said they're going to do. Um, but on that next, on the, question, the specific question, once we know that we have a healthier space based on these performance um, inspections and visual inspections, then we can start to really gather data about how productive people are being. Now, we recognize there's a long way to go. We also recognize that people measure productivity um, in different ways depending on the type of organization and the work that they do. Um, so I think a little bit is setting standards that are flexible enough to accommodate different working styles. Um, some of it, too, is getting people to measure both pre- and post-occupancy data so we can start to understand the changes. Um, and I think over time, we'll be able to do that. We'll have um, more vetted, well, surveys that encompass more uh, thoughtful questions about productivity um, that we can gather into a national or international database and understand how this is affecting all different types of groups. Um, and through some of this clinical lab work, I think we'll also understand in a more controlled setting how specific strategies are impacting the way people feel. So over the next probably three to five years, I think we're going to see a huge influx of data around productivity, around happiness as it relates to these healthier design strategies. I see there the this is where my my background and what I used to do to what I'm doing today and working with ASID um, begin to come together. Uh, so my previous career was in uh, working at Booz Allen Hamilton, and I was a organization development change management consultant. Um, and I worked alongside uh, industrial organizational psychologists who who did engagement surveys and did uh, retention studies in a very very deep way. Um, and what they're beginning to layer into this, and I had some opportunities to present to the Society for Industrial Organizational Psychologists and the Families and Work Institute, is the, the programs that they've always had out there, they're beginning to see how they all come together and they're adding space design into that component. Um, a lot of organizations, when we used to go out and do um, employee engagement surveys, and then in the back end of it, we'd actually talk about, well, what do we need to do to improve engagement in their organization? And then we'd, year over year, um, we'd be studying these things. And we always, and we were able to correlate engagement to productivity and retention. Um, those types of things never talked about space. Um, and what we've been introducing into the conversation is now the actual space design as a component of that. And we're beginning to see that that community is really seeing the correlation between the two. Going to how um, Jessica and the well building standards, and by the way, um, you know, ASID is so committed to kind of these concepts, we're actually designing our new headquarters and it's gonna be, um, we're going to go for a lead platinum in a well platinum space, um, uh, which is, I, I think is phenomenal. Um, and it's gonna be a great place to work. Uh, so, um, but, when you think about design, and this is what I, I, I've been talking about, you, you have to think about these three variables. There's design, 
There is the protocols, the facility management side of it. What are they doing to support the design elements that are being built into the space? And then there's the behavioral side. Those three dimensions are core. That's what we used to talk about. We, we talked about everything in that when we were talking about work-life balance or when we were talking about um, engagement and other things, but we didn't talk about the design component of it. And now that intersection of that third dimension is really, I think, where we're seeing the elevation of this. And I actually see it as a three-legged stool. You can't have one without the other. Um, taking one of those legs away, you actually decrease the, the opportunity. How many of us have been in, had an amazing supervisor, great outcome, you know, driven organization that we worked in, um, and really had, you know, a great team that we worked with, but when we showed up to work every single day, the office that we were working in was just like, oh my God, do I have to work in this space? And what that did to us as people, I mean, it really does pull you down from what, what you're looking at. And the vice, the, you know, the opposite takes effect as well. You can have a really amazingly designed space and you can have the best policies and procedures in place, but if your boss, when you're at that barista station, which is supposed to create communal living and active design, comes up to you and says, what the hell are you doing there? Why aren't you at your desk? You've just destroyed the cultural aspect of the, of the equation and you've now uh, minimized the other things. So that three dimension and then the measurement associated with it is critical. So both of you mentioned, and you just elaborated a little bit more, you talked about the, the uh, lead, platinum lead and platinum um, uh, well building. Could you elaborate a little bit more on the extent that they cross over, what the differentiation? Sure. Um, I mean, the environmental sustainability industry has always done a good job at addressing human health, but not a complete job, I think I would say. Um, so we've always seen human health initiatives, particularly in the indoor environmental quality section of LEED, um, and they've been primarily focused on air quality, which is hugely important, but only one-seventh of the picture as, you know, so, sort of how we paint it. Um, so there is, I think, around a 15 to 20 percent overlap between LEED and WELL, and this holds true in other environmental sustainability standards around the world, like BREAM and Green Star and some of these other programs. Um, and it largely is in that indoor environmental quality section when we look at air quality. What filtration are we using? What are our ventilation rates? Um, potentially even what materials are we selecting? LEED is doing a good job now at looking at acoustics and lighting, but again is not looking at as much of a holistic perspective. Um, so it was probably in 2012 when Delos made the commitment at the Clinton Global Initiative to release the well building standard as a non-proprietary design protocol um, and created the International Well Building Institute that we also started engaging more with USGBC to help them pick up on these health and wellness initiatives and integrate them with their sustainability standards. So Rick Fredruzzi is on our board of directors and he was very influential in the development of some of the pilot protocols. Um, and now, actually, through the partnership with the Green Building Certification Institute, there's even more of a seamless interplay between the LEED and the well rating systems. But we see them as complementary. Um, we let the USGBC and the LEED rating system do what it does best and quantify environmental sustainability. And then they turn to us to really quantify, from a performance-based perspective, the human sustainability piece. So whenever possible, we encourage our clients to do both. We think it um, provides a truly optimized environment to do both. Um, but you obviously don't have to do one to achieve the other. Okay. So there's a question. Is there a building in Chicago using the well building standard? There are. Um, and I believe all of them have asked to be confidential. Um, but I can say um, that there is a core and shell project that should be achieving its certification soon. And there are two tenant improvement projects as well. Um, one of them is a tech firm that you're probably very familiar with that's undergoing the well certification. And that one is actually the developer um, who is achieving well core and shell, um, the tenant that I'm referring to is in that core and shell building. So they were able to work together to create, um, you know, not only a tenant improvement certification, but also the core and shell, which is really exciting. Um, um, so there's a question, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to modify it a little bit. So you've done a lot of work with pilot studies to, to get the program to where it is. Um, the question is, uh, how do you distinguish the wellness programs that don't have an impact from the ones that do. So in your pilot studying, what were some of the lessons learned that allowed you to develop um, the, the program as it is in a way that is functional? Sure. Um, so early on, 
Um, so Daylist was founded in 2007 by Paul Shala, who is not a real estate person at all. He was actually a Wall Street guy, spent 20 years of his career on Wall Street, um, the last 15 or so at Goldman Sachs. And he really saw this economic play between the largest asset class and the fastest growing industry in the world, real estate, health and wellness. Let's put them together. Why aren't we putting them together? We have vitamin water, for goodness sake. We should have healthy buildings. Um, so he engaged in probably a five-year period of full-on research um, to really understand what is is it about the built environment that can positively impact health? Um, and early on, there were a lot of strategies that pointed towards um, less evidence-based policies. So some of the earlier pilots had things like um, aromatherapy um, or posture-supportive flooring or things like that, e uh, EMF shielding. Um, examples like that that range all the way from sort of like spa-like amenities to um, areas where there is scientific research, but not enough to fully substantiate a recommendation. So I think some of the biggest changes and advancements we made over those three years of pilots was really understanding where did we have enough scientific and medical research to substantiate the suggestions we were making, and where we didn't, pulling those out and putting them in potentially a separate bucket of research that either warranted more investigation or just saying, okay, we've, we've fully vetted the vetted this and this is less um, important in the built environment. So is that, does that answer your question? So. Yes. Yeah. I would just add in, in there, there, the nice thing is, is there, what is you're seeing is a confluence of a lot of different things that are out there um, and coming together. Um, so the Center for Healthcare Design has existed um, and done evidence-based design as well for a long time related to the healthcare facilities. Um, and I don't know how many, how many of you represent um, hospitals and, and healthcare properties as part of your real estate portfolios. Um, but that became the very first place where really evidence-based design um, was uh, dramatically um, put into place because we, there was a very clear understanding by the design community that the decisions of the products and even the, the way they laid out rooms could impact the patient outcomes. Um, and did the patient actually leave the hospital more quickly? Um, and that, that correlation going then into the cost of our healthcare system. Um, if you think about materials, uh, you can think, okay, you know, let's put natural wood in the space because it's great. Well, natural wood, if it's not treated the right way, can actually be the most porous material out there, and you can actually wind up with um, disease and pestilence, as I say, um, in the wood itself and spread that in a very communicable way in a hospital, and a person can become more sick in a hospital than they actually are outside of the hospital. Um, so all of those dimensions really started early in the healthcare settings, then began to move into the assisted living facilities. And I think what's great about the, the fact that the well standard has come on is it's taking it into the, the mainstream of how does this now impact you in your home? How does it impact you at work? How does it impact you in other places? The retail setting, just really quick, has done also a lot of studying, but it's not about whether or not you get healthy while you're leaving a store. It's actually how much did you purchase before you left the store, and how does design impact that? <laughs> Well, that's the list of questions that we have from the audience, and I think we've, we've filled our time. So I think this has been a fantastic um, presentation, both of our knowledgeable presenters, and thank you very much. I just want to say thank you to all three of you, Colleen, Randy, and Jessica, for sharing what's the leading edge in building design and principles and health principles coming forward. So I uh, look forward to uh, having this roll out across the industry and uh, knowing that we're one of the first to hear about it. So thank you for coming today. <laughs>